Welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed therapist with over a decade experience. And this is Trisha, and I'm really hoping one of our New England fans can let me know if a flumadiddle is any good. That is a very silly word. What is a flumadiddle? It's a casserole made in New England. And I know we have people from Massachusetts that are listening to us. So if you could um, DM or email us and let us know if you enjoy a flumadiddle, maybe I'll make one. I mean, a good casserole is, you know, never something to smirk at. Right. And, you know, New England is known for some really good things like clam chowder and cronuts. What's a cronut? It's a croissant donut. Oh, my god. I mean, gosh, I guess that's that like New York, amazing. but that's sort of New England, right? Yeah. Almost. I think that maybe they would think not, but I don't know. Okay. Well, anyways, welcome to Addicted to Murder. Yes. And once again, thank you to all of our listeners and our fans who have liked and downloaded and rated and reviewed and subscribed and all of the above. Um, but if you haven't done any of those things, um, you can reach us and get a hold of us um, through our social media. So you can reach us on our Facebook, which is Addicted to Murder Podcast, on our Instagram, which is Addicted to M Podcast, on our Twitter, which is also Addicted to Murder Podcast, or you can reach us by email at Addicted to Murder Podcast at gmail.com. Very good, Courtney. <clears throat> well, it's time for our question segment, and it's my question today. And my question is, think back to when you were little. What was the first scary movie you watched that had an impact on you? Like you either had bad dreams or you were scared to turn the light off or anything like that. Can you think of one? The one that comes to mind is um, Pet Cemetery. <gasps> first one or second one? I don't know. Was it a cat or a dog? Cat. Okay, that's the first one. Yes. So I don't remember much about that movie, but I remember being terrified of it and not wanting to visit any sort of pet graveyards and worrying about if my dead pet hamster was going to come to life and murder me. Fun fact, Stephen King said that was the scariest movie or scariest book that he thinks he has ever written. Well, Stephen King, I agree with you. It was, it was a really scary one. The second one wasn't um, written by Stephen King, the movie, but um, it was like the same premise, and it had Eddie Furlong, who at the time I was in love with, even though now it's not the same feeling. Right. <laughs> How about you? What was your first scary movie okay, this, moment? Again, I always have the most random stupid ones, uh, but Critters 2. So <laughs> what I remember about Critters 2 is that all the critters got into this giant ball, like an Indiana Jones ball, and um, started rolling, and they rolled over someone, and then what was left was their skeleton. And I just remembered that. That's terrifying. It was. As a kid, I'm sure I haven't seen that movie since I was little, and I'm sure if I watched it now, I'd be like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? Right, but when you're a kid, that's like those little things just stick yeah. with you. I was totally scared of tremors as well. And, you know, like I was afraid to make the vibrations because those were scary. Those worms in the ground. There were a lot of movies that were scary that maybe weren't intended to be like horror movies that came out. Yeah. In like the late 80s, early 90s. But then like a little kid sees it and it's terrifying. But like an adult's just like, oh, this is funny. Exactly. Anyway. Well, welcome to Addicted to Murder, BTK Part 2. Yes. You know, we learned about... 
the beginnings of little Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK, and his childhood, um, and a whole lot about his discovering a love for bondage at a very young age and having very, very detailed sexual fantasies. Right. Very disturbing detailed sexual fantasies for such a little kid. He enjoyed tying, or he his fantasies involved either having a woman bound and tied and terrified or doing that to himself. Yes, which, yeah. you know, when you're 12, that's a little much. That's a little much. I'd agree. So in Dennis's early teenage years, he remembered when he found one of his dad's magazines uh, with an article of Harvey Glattman along with the pictures of his victims in bondage. So I looked up Harvey Glattman because I didn't know who he was and he was a serial killer, so... Maybe we'll get around to him someday. Um, and he said, quote, the rope was the key. I put the magazine back where I found it, but it had a profound effect. The image of the woman staring, terrifying, knowing death was coming, was frozen for me. It was part of my SF, sexual fantasy, the rest of my life, the best gratification. So this started Dennis's obsession with what he later called slick ads. Um, he talks about these a lot. He gets off to them. Um, they're photos of women a lot of times like out of a J.C. Penny or Myron Frank or whatever catalog, but then he would draw bondage on top of the pictures. He didn't seem to get ones from like Playboy or anything. They were just like regular looking women. Mm-hmm. But um, so it made them look like they were being tortured and he would use these to masturbate too. Courtney, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's totally normal for teen boys to be interested in pornography and you know, it would be a normal progression in terms of like using these images for sexual fantasies. Um, and so I actually looked up Harvey Glattman as well. Um, and he was a professional photographer who would hire models for a photo shoot that he'd have be like a bondage theme. But then once they were in bondage, he would photograph them and kill them. Um, and so seeing you know, his photos may have been one of the first times that, like, Dennis really saw his fantasies depicted anywhere outside of his own head. Okay. Well, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I I will have to look at Harvey some more one of these days. In 1959, Dennis broke into a house for the first time. He rigged his bed to look like he was asleep in case his parents checked in on him, and he broke into... um, Oh, I'm sorry. He didn't break into a house. He broke into his school, but it was his first time doing a B&E, is what he calls them, breaking in. And he broke into his school through a skylight with the intention of rifling through a girl's desk. Dennis would also rifle through his mother's stuff when the family was gone. So he just liked to touch female things. As you said in part one, he was very much into silk and satin. Um, He said that he would just like rub his grandma's um, ribbons in her hair or he had a blanket with like a satin lining and he would just rub that. He just really enjoyed that. So sometimes he'd take old pairs of panties and he would use them to gratify himself. Dennis said that he was a shy kid and wasn't adept at talking to pretty girls. So for him, rifling through their things at school was how he kind of connected with females his age. So Courtney, Dennis is breaking and entering and stealing now. So he must be on his way to conduct disorder. What do you think? Why do you think he has such a rich fantasy life regarding bondage and scaring women? He did say he mad- he imagined tying women and girls to railroad tracks as a young boy. Now, I would say that conduct disorder could probably be given to teenage Dennis, although at the time it may not have been so obvious to the people around him. So, yes, he was lying and stealing, harming animals, and had very detailed fantasies and thoughts about hurting and sexually assaulting women. 
Um, but at the same time, he kept all of these things pretty hidden and private and presented to others as a normal, if shy and awkward boy. Um, and, you know, the secrecy is part of what let his fantasy life grow so strong. You know, he knew enough about the world to know that most other people would not understand or approve of his thoughts. So he couldn't share them with anybody. Yet he had some difficulty with social situations and likely retreated into his imagination when he felt lonely. And Dennis had a very vivid imagination and was able to imagine things in really great detail. So you, even though he's not physically acting on a lot of these negative impulse or his impulses as, as far as actually har- harming people you'd still give him conduct disorder diagnosis because of everything else that's going on if I were like assessing him knowing everything that I know about him now mm-hmm. probably okay so can you explain to us about disassociation which Dennis does constantly um, why does it occur and what is happening when it does and also how common is it So dissociation is when a person is able to sort of disconnect their mind from reality. Um, And this can happen through imagination. It can happen through like a trauma response. Um, And it's basically a way to escape um, within your own mind. So now there are two things kind of going on with Dennis and Dennis's mind. Um, He had a very vivid imagination and was able to imagine things in great detail, including things like physical sensations and emotions. The world he could create in his mind was probably much more interesting and enjoyable to him than real life was. There is this concept, um, it's called maladaptive daydreaming, which is when a person can get so caught up in their fantasy that they sort of neglect their responsibilities and can have a hard time distinguishing between fantasy and reality. Um, And I think it's likely that Dennis probably experienced this. And sort of on the other part that's more specific to dissociating as opposed to like imagination um, is what Dennis described as cubing um, and many other people think of as like compartmentalizing. So in essence, this means that a person is able to kind of turn on and off different parts of their consciousness and personality in order to fit the situation they're in. So um, in a documentary that was sort of based on the book as well, um, they use this image of a 3D cube. And so if you imagine a 3D cube, there are six sides to the cube, but you're only able to see one or two sides at a time, depending sort of on where you're standing in relationship to it. So the cube represents the whole personality, all the parts of it that are always there. But Dennis is able to kind of rotate the cube so that only certain parts are visible. When he was at church, for example, he could easily kind of turn off or hide that hypersexual and developing sadism sides of himself. And so this ability is what eventually led him to be able to commit these murders and then like go home and play with his young children. He does talk about cubing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in March of 1963, Dennis turned 18 and he barely graduated high school. By this time, his need for seeing women either in his slick ads or in the flesh was so intense that he sometimes would pose himself in front of a mirror and draw bondage on the glass to see himself. 
He was at this time still pretty shy with females, so his fantasies of torture and bondage only grew, and his need for self-bondage to achieve climax increased. So when he got his first car a little later on, he did start to date, but he was still, you know, kind of unsure of himself. Dennis ended up joining the Air Force, where he continued to create and use slick ads, although every time he was stationed everywhere or somewhere else, he would destroy them and then start over. He had sex for the first time with the prostitute overseas at age 22. He said the first experience was a dismal failure, but then he paid handsomely to an older woman and it went much better. When he came back from overseas in 1970, he went to a church gathering with his parents who wanted him to meet a nice girl, and this is where he met Paula Dietz. He had gotten over his shyness by then, and he asked her out. He recounted that during his courtship with Paula, he was lovestruck right away, and that at another church gathering where Dennis expected to see Paula and she did not show up, he was devastated. He said, did she not like me? We'd had two or three dates. I became physically sick. I threw up outside. It hurt so bad. So this was Dennis's reaction to thinking Paula didn't like him. He was so infatuated or in love that he got physically ill at the thought of her abandoning him after only a short time of them knowing each other. So Courtney, I had talked to you about this, um, you know, before this podcast about my suspicions that Dennis may suffer from borderline personality disorder. And this reaction right here is really what made me feel that way, that and his cubing, um, so in other behaviors that we'll see in the future do you think it's a possibility and even if it's not can you go over a little bit about what BPD is with us yes um, so borderline personality disorder is a diagnosis that's given based on a number of patterns of behavior over time um, so these include things like intense mood swings and inappropriate anger feelings of emptiness unstable sense of self intense and unstable relationships, chronic dissociation, fear of abandonment, and chronic suicidality with episodes of like risky or self-harming behaviors. So the majority of people with uh, borderline personality disorder also experience significant trauma during kind of their childhood or developmental years. So while I can see, you know, some traits and, and isolated behaviors of BPD, like that intense response he had to Paula not being at church. Um, I don't think that Dennis Rader has BPD. I think it's more likely that he has narcissistic personality disorder, which, you know, there's actually a fair bit of overlap with BPD and sort of how it presents, um, but the underlying motivators are different. So um, we'll definitely talk more about narcissistic personality disorder as we get into Dennis's crimes and his communication with law enforcement. Um, yeah, but I think you were picking up on some of those themes of like needing attention, attachment problems, not wanting to be abandoned. Um, it was just the his response that he threw up after knowing someone for three dates and he was already feeling like that was what made me like, what the heck is that? I mean, if, if it's not that, then he's got some other some sort of abandonment issue going on, but. I mean, definitely, like, his, that need for acceptance and admiration and love from others. Um, Probably. With narcissism. Yeah, you know, that's true. Feeds into that, too. Um, 
Well, Dennis and Paula continued to date, so she she <laughs> she didn't ditch him at that party. She just wasn't there that day. And they got engaged and eventually married in 1971. So at this time, Dennis started college at Butler County Community College, and he described himself as a lone wolf during his time at college. He would eat alone and sit, and he'd watch all the girls. He started carrying around a mini hit kit. He started to really fantasize about kidnapping one of the co-eds. Dennis, in his off hours from school and his job at Leakers, would drive around the town of El Dorado in search of abandoned farms or homes where he could practice his self-bondage. By this point, he was binding himself hand and foot with a tight rope around the groin area. He would gag himself, put a plastic bag over his head, and a noose around his neck. He carried his mini hit kit, which contained a gun, so if someone were to have happened upon him in that situation, he would have killed them. That's what he said he would have done. There are pictures of this that he took of himself in the book that we're using um, called Confessions of a Serial Killer by Catherine Ramsland. If you're interested, they're disturbing. I mean, he did a lot of self-photography of himself in bondage and in drag. Right, and both. Yeah. So Dennis's fantasies and secret sex life continued in private for a couple more years. He enjoyed cross-dressing, and he took many more photos of himself in full bondage in women's underwear. I just said that. Sorry, guys. His craving for killing was growing, however. He tried to incorporate some S&M into the bedroom with Paula, but she did not go for it. Dennis was growing more and more desperate to make his fantasies become real, and when he got laid off in 1973, he said he was in a very dark place. He began breaking into houses, taking small things, and then leaving. He then began stalking a bank tank, a bank teller. Uh, he figured out when her lunch hour was. He found out who, what her car looked like. And one day when she went to her car, Dennis was there. He went up to the car and tried to get inside with her. She screamed and fought him off, and Dennis gave up, apologized, and left quickly. After this bumbled attempt at kidnapping, Dennis decided he would attack someone in their own home. His goal was to hang someone. Dennis decided upon Julie Otero for his victim. He partially chose Julie because, quote, the Oteros were picked due to my trolling, stalking, then locking in. I like the Hispanic people. The females look sexy to me. Once spotted, the stalking stage takes place. The trolling stage is when you're trolling for them. The stalking stage is when you've walked in on them. I had watched the houses in the Otero neighborhood. Even if they were gone on the day that I picked, I was going to take the next house over. I could change it to someone else. So it sounds like he just wanted to kill. If the Oteros weren't home on the day that he was going to do this, he would just go to the next door neighbor and and kill them instead. So Courtney, do you have any thoughts? Now, when he was first laid off, um, Dennis talked about being angry and feeling like the world was unfair to him. So he wanted to, quote, like, do something bad to kind of get back at the world, so to speak. Um, So that's kind of what those B&Es were about um, that he sort of started with. And then, now sort of having crossed that line as an adult, um, he started to realize that he could actually take steps to make his other fantasies real as well. So it was really only a matter of time before he felt the need to act out on his ultimate fantasy of bondage and murder. So Dennis, being the odd duck that he is, um, decides to call all of his potential victims projects, or PJs. If he's successful, he calls them hits. So he decided to name this particular crime Project Little Mex. He's very creative, as we can see. Um, On the day he decided to make the hit, 
he waited for his wife to go to work, then put on his Air Force parka and drove to Wichita, where the Oteros lived. He parked away from their house and walked around the neighborhood. This is a quote. My heart beat fast. This had been more of a game, daring myself and pushing the limit. The fantasy had begun to crystallize sharply. Dennis had studied the family for a while and knew that the father would be gone by 8 in the morning and the older kids would be in school at the time he arrived, which was about 8.20 in the morning. He expected the mother and her two small children to be the only ones at home. He chose the most vulnerable of the family to target. He went through the backyard and he cut the phone lines and he did see dog prints in the snow and that almost made him change his mind. Um, he didn't realize there would be a dog, I think. He had prepared his, hit, his kit with a gun and some knotted ropes. When he entered the house, gun in hand, he was surprised to see Mr. Otero was actually at home. Mr. Otero at first thought it was all a joke, like a family member was playing on them or something, but it took a while for Dennis to convince them that he was a legit threat. I imagine that he just looked goofy and, you know, lost, but who knows. But when they finally realized that they were in actual danger, Dennis said that they had small talk about the Air Force and he calmed them down. Eventually, they just thought he was going to rob them. They had very little to offer, but they gave him what they could, which was a watch and a typewriter. He then tied up all the family members and gagged them, and the yipping dog was put outside. This is a quote. I think I wrapped the rope around Mr. Otero's neck. I had never strangled before. I didn't realize how long it took, and the victim was fighting. Then I strangled Mrs. Otero. Once she quit moving, I let pressure up. Next was Josephine. And she asked, what's going on? And I told her I had put her parents to sleep and you're next. I strangled her until she quit moving. So Dennis, being the bumbling dolt that he is, did not successfully strangle Mr. Otero to death. And as he woke up from the attempted murder, um, so Dennis decided next to try plastic bags. He put a plastic bag of, over Joseph Jr.'s head and then Mrs. Otero woke up. So he didn't strangle her all the way either. Um, and she was freaking out. Uh, Mr. Otero was struggling to get loose, and Dennis almost decided to just give up and leave because he had screwed it up so bad. But he then strangled her with a clove hitch, which was a knot he had mastered, and he strangled Mr. Otero with his belt. I think he realized that they could identify him. He wasn't wearing a mask, and he was like, shit, now I, gotta, I just got to finish it. Dennis said many um, had thought that he tortured the Oteros on purpose by reviving them and strangling them, but he didn't. He just didn't know what he was doing. So now three of the four are dead, but little Josephine was still only passed out. Dennis took the little girl down to the basement where he attached a hangman's noose to the sewer pipe. Then he removed her pants and her panties, cut her bra off, tied up her ankles and wrists, and then hung her. He got so excited that he masturbated and then got semen on her clothes. Courtney, so Dennis finally did it. He had acted out his fantasy. He was not very good at executing it. But, you know, he did. He said he almost stopped a few times, um, but he didn't. He finished up. Can you tell us now what your thoughts are on Dennis after his first kill? Any new diagnosis or mental health concerns that you want to address? Now, it's totally normal for the first time kind of trying anything new to go poorly and not according to plan. And it's the same with murder. Um, and Dennis really made it harder on himself by choosing a family instead of an individual. He was clearly nervous and underprepared, but he did show determination and some ingenuity when he had to adapt to his new circumstances. Um, and as we'll see, while you know Dennis continues to have 
bad luck for his, quote, projects. Um, he did learn from mistakes he made with the Oteros and, you know, changed some things. And now that he'd had a taste for murder in the real world, not just in his mind, it would prove to be an addiction, right? With him continuing to chase that feeling of adrenaline and excitement. Um, so, you know, no new diagnoses just yet. Um, but as we get into the next session, I know there will be plenty to talk about. Well, and I was thinking that too, like way to pick a big, you know, first time, you know what I mean? Even if it was just the mom and the two little girls, that's still three, right? Or I think one was a little boy, but either way, I, I thought that was odd too, that he picked such a big family and not an individual. And he did it in their home, which is like their home turf, right? Mm-hmm. So that seems also risky as opposed to some of these other killers who, who do it out, like grab someone outside and take them to a place and yeah right he didn't choose like victims that were considered to be like easy marks right let's say a lot of serial killers start with sex workers right. and things like that because yeah right. people aren't going to notice right away that they're gone mm-hmm. but you know you kill a whole family and little kids and their other kids come home there's people are going to notice so um i'm just thinking back that Israel Keys, Dennis Rader, and Gary Ridgway have all said that strangling is is hard work. And, you know, I guess I never really thought about it, but I just feel like necks are fragile, but apparently it's it's hard to strangle someone. So that's something I'm learning as we go along. Yeah, and I don't remember the exact amount of time, but I'm going to make a guess here. I feel like I've read somewhere that it takes like like five to seven minutes to strangle someone to death. Hmm. And that's hard work when they're fighting against right. you and you're having to keep that pressure and yeah, and so gotta he, be strong. He, he did that with you know several times with his family, so I think he was probably pretty tired afterwards. But okay, well I think that's where we're gonna stop for today before we get into the final part, which is you know when he becomes BTK. Um, so Courtney, any final thoughts before we before we uh, close up shop? Just that part three is gonna be a wild ride. Woohoo! Well, thank you all. Please listen, like, follow, tell your friend, subscribe, and we will see you next Tuesday. Goodbye. Bye.